Welcome back to ArtSmack. I'm your host, Matthew Capasso, and I'm here with... Jerry Gagosian. Jerry, how we doing? What's going on? Um, Just wonderful in this beautiful non-tundra of winter we've got going on. Yeah, it's been pretty mild, I think, actually, surprisingly. Been waiting to build a snowman. (laughs) Well, guys, we got a great show for you this week. I want to give a quick reminder that Jerry and I are running this independently. And we really rely on your feedback and particularly your five-star reviews. So if you'd be so kind at the end of the episode, whether you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, throw us a little five stars, would you? It really helps get the word out and spreads the podcast on those platforms. Those shiny big five stars, if you would. (laughs) So we have a little bit of a special introduction this week. We have decided to outsource the introduction of this week's topics to, would you say, a near dear friend of ours, someone we've been working with for a few weeks now, we really admire? A god. Yeah, we're going to have ChatGBT read off the podcast topics this week, so enjoy. Introduction. Welcome to the podcast, where we will be discussing the play The Collaboration. We will explore the background and themes of the play, which examines the friendship and artistic partnership between these two influential figures in the art world. I art. We will explore the topic of A-Art and its effects on the art world, including the potential implications for artists, collectors, and the industry as a whole. Conclusion We will wrap up the podcast by summarizing the main points discussed and encouraging listeners to check out the play, the collaboration, or explore more about Basquiat and Warhol on the road. Jerry, are we in trouble? <sighs> We're going to be outsourced soon. We're going to kick off this week's episode talking about a play that Jerry and I saw this weekend titled The Collaboration, which tells the story of the relationship between Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol. Jerry, quick thoughts. What do you think about the play? I thought that it was, pun intended, painted with a rather large brush. (laughs) We're going to get into it. It was really interesting. It was a fun little excursion to the city. The play's on Broadway. It's called The Collaboration. There was no singing. I liked that. No singing. It was it was a pure drama play, not a musical. It, it was, was not a comedy, though I think it was supposed to be. The play The Collaboration was written by playwright Anthony McCartan, who's also written a bunch of big screen plays. He was responsible for the biopics about Stephen Hawking in 2014, The Theory of Everything. Darkest Hour, which talked about Winston Churchill, Bohemian Rhapsody, the big Freddie Mercury piece, The Two Popes, which won an Oscar a few years ago. And he recently did a Whitney Houston biopic. Mm -hmm. So McCartan has this whole project he's working on about money and art and fame. And the collaboration is his play about Andy Warhol and Basquiat. In the future, he's going to do one on Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Be very curious to see which actors take on the exalted roles of finance and tech titans. The play will be made into a feature film in the coming years. It stars Paul Bettany as Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. You might know him from the Marvel Vision character. Mm-hmm. I know him from the movie The Night's Tale with Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. You ever see that? Yes. Yeah, he's like the naked, degenerate gambler guy. Mm-hmm. And Jean-Michel Basquiat is played by an up-and-coming actor named Jeremy Pope, who got a lot of Oscar buzz this year for another film that he was in. So you had some thoughts on the play. 
and you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the topic, but could you elaborate more? I mean, let's get into it. What'd you think? Was it an accurate depiction of the relationship between these two well, I mean, giants? I don't, who, know, who knows what is ever accurate, right? Well, we'll let's start there. Mm-hmm. The, I know that the first time I was ever introduced to the idea of their relationship was in the film Basquiat, which Julian Schnabel made. Julian, why'd I say it like that? Julian. Because you got like the Jean-Michel yeah, Jean-Michel Julian, Julian going on. that Julian Schnabel made. And their relationship played a little more nuanced. I have never really seen a film where Andy Warhol is ever played tenderly. Like in the Edie Sedgwick film, Andy Warhol is played out to be this like big time user of humans, kind of cold, like, I used you as my play toy, and now you're a worthless drug addict. Get out of my life. Goodbye. And in Basquiat, the original one that I saw, he definitely, it it seemed as though Warhol had tender feelings towards Jean-Michel, but once the H gets deep into someone's blood, um, it's uh, if anybody has ever had a family member or a friend who gets seriously addicted to that drug, it's pretty hard to shake them out of it. And there are notorious stories of of people in the art world locking him in a basement with that drug just to get him to crank out paintings. So, and that was not Andy Warhol. So I think there was a point at which Andy may have given up on that friendship or backed out of it. But the way that this play even starts it out is that Jean-Michel kind of wants nothing to do with Andy Warhol because... He thinks he's like a has-been. He's like a has-been, crusty old wannabe vampire doesn't do his own painting doesn't, anymore right that was a big thing but like andy never did his own painting, I mean, like really. in the beginning. Or, well in the beginning he used to like paint like shoes and stuff when he made like commercial paintings but anyway i don't know it was just an interesting sort of like they created this friction very early on which was the opposite of how I saw Jean Michel sort of always idolizing Warhol in the beginning of the Basquiat film, which was him being like, "Hey, do you want to buy some ignorant art?" and and Warhol being like, "Ooh, the I like these. These are different. These are weird. How much do you have?" and being like, "Ooh, can I borrow borrow some money from whoever he was at the table with?" and like buying some and you know, there being some kind of an attraction and appreciation from the beginning. And so it, from, from the start, there's sort of this false premise. And then they, I don't want to like spoiler alert or, or spoiler it too much. I think we can. I mean, these, uh, well, let me say the, the collaboration starts with 
first half is like they they're in a studio and the whole thing is like, huh, I don't like you. Huh, I don't like you. You're a has been, and then Warhol's like, I will never work with that guy. And Bruno Bischoffberger is trying to get them to collaborate on kind this of tricking each other. Joint exhibition. Oh, the other one says you're such a genius. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other one, he's just dying to work with you. It, it depicted them as kind of dismissive of each other. I think Warhol had. It's it's very clear in both the Basquiat film that we watched last night and the play that Warhol had a keen sense of where art was headed and that he recognized that in Basquiat, you know? Both film and play depicted him as being on the cutting edge of what was to come, but the reactions of it were depicted very differently. I mean, in the Basquiat film, Warhol was receptive and open and supportive. There's the scene where they're at Basquiat's opening with Anina no say and Andy's like chummy chummy cheering him up juxtapose that with the play Andy's like ah ah I can't I can't deal with it he won't he I don't want to work with him no 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 and it was just it was interesting to see the two ways and like you said to the beginning well here's the thing Schnabel knew these guys yeah Schnabel was there right so he at least could identify something about the relationship and, and depict it on film I don't think Anthony McCarran a New Zealand screenwriter was in the 1980s in New York He's coming at this from his his big project of these mega biopics that went Oscars. Right. It's it was a really interesting juxtaposition. We watched both back to back, you know. Right. And I just I again, this is why I always think these things g- get done wrong. I wrote a nonfiction television series about the art world that was that went into two different shopping arrangements with production companies. And the reason that both times they were not made was because in both instances, the production companies kept wanting me to write about things that were not realistic about the art world. And I can imagine that this the reason that this could or would get turned into a massive, you know, blockbuster style film is that they're going to get somebody who's good at formulaically writing like two characters in the, the most traditional way. Like, I don't like you. I don't like you either. Oh, we come to find a way. But they they glaze over what their commonalities like even were, how they even came to like each other what that would have even have been it's so interesting in the play it's a two-act play the first act is reluctancy maybe we agree to do it they're in the studio there's conflict andy keeps filming jean-michel basquiat because at that point warhol was really interested in, in creating films and a main source of their conflict is jeremy pope's character basquiat is like stop filming me stop and at one point he actually takes the film and rips it out and starts to destroy it. The end of act one, you're sitting there, you're like, okay, these guys got to work this out. Intermission, 15 minutes. There's some screen kind of going in the background that's showing the two characters bonding. And then by act two, we had fast forward two years and they were best friends. You know, it just jumped. It jumped from reluctancy problems to literally they are, Warhol's in his apartment, Mm -hmm. caring for his place, worried about him discovering drugs with Bruno and it's it's a totally different dynamic and it really skips. Mm-hmm. So the Basquiat film in 96, I gotta be honest, I enjoyed more. Mm-hmm. I feel like I learned more. Again, it was a 
scripted film project, which they can go deeper into stuff, you know, Broadway play with four actors, it's quite difficult to learn too, too much. So what did you think about the performances of the play? You know, Pope's character of Basquiat, Paul Bettany playing Warhol, and I guess juxtaposed against Jeffrey Wright doing Basquiat in the Schnabel film and David Bowie doing Andy Warhol in that film too. Because I would think those four characters, there's like big differences between them. I mean, yeah, I'll just say I felt like the Basquiat depictions, I mean, by all accounts, he was like a soft-spoken guy. He was mm-hmm. kind of a little shy, a little introverted. I think both the characters tried to get that, you know? Jeffrey Wright, I think, did more of a strong job in just his like little aloofness and where Pope was a little bit more theatrical, obviously. Right. And yes, I think, you know how when you're walking down the street in any major city and you can see, you can, I can see by somebody's body language down the street, like, oh, I'm going to probably cross the street because I can tell that person's on H because of, because of how they're physically acting and it must be hard when you're playing a character who is beloved and you don't want to sort of show that side of somebody being like I don't know what is it yacked out of their mind or whatever the the terminology is for it and somebody who's yeah so beloved and who was born with I would say a compulsive talent and you know, a a brilliant, a brilliant mind and a compulsive talent. Compulsive to the point where I don't, I don't know if it was the drugs that disinhibited him from. Some people are, could be like, oh well, he was just such a genius, but I mean, he also broke a lot of boundaries that I'm sure people didn't really appreciate. Like Basquiat, like would ruin other people's property, like his girlfriend's clothes and. His girlfriend's the re- the refrigerator. refrigerator. That was a big theme in both the Basquiat film and the play. Like this fridge became this artwork. Yeah. Know. That it was like full of like him just drawing inside of it, outside of it, and that she could sell it to Christie's auction house and like make a bunch of money. But like that was also like not okay. That was her for her food. That wasn't an art objects you know and so you see this like acting and i've watched interviews just on youtube since then where you you see him and he's sitting still and i'm always wondering because he's not playing this like wavy cool like drugged out guy and i'm like either he just shot up and so he's in this like he's very cool calm moment or he's like, I, I wonder at what level of high he's at because he's he came across soft-spoken, but he also didn't come across particularly vulnerable either. Like when you hear him talking in interviews, he comes across as very guarded, which is something that take it from a, you know, s- sober alcoholic, like, you know, somebody who's like not going to let you in whatsoever. They're going to give you the smallest amount possible and kind of like gave the Andy Warhol treatment, the like short answers. I'm going to answer you as little as possible. Like he wasn't 
opening up and like being poetic with people. He was like giving very minimal answers to press, to whoever, you know. So I think really the way that what we have to go off of on who he was is the impressions that of the people that lived with and amongst him. And that's why it may be skewed, but maybe the Julian Schnabel, because he really was there, ultimately is probably so far the better story told version of this. Yeah, you know, I think I agree with you. Reflecting on the play, one of the things that stood out is in the opening of Act One, the first thing you see is Paul Bettany's Andy Warhol standing stage center, giving a monologue. The dealer comes in, Bruno Bischoffberger, and he's trying to convince him to do this collaboration with Jean-Michel Basquiat. And you're meant to believe that Andy is maybe the lead in this. And that kind of reflects what the billing was for the play online. That it's, or at least maybe not Andy being the lead, but that it's their dual lead characters. It's one of those stories. But by the time Pope's Basquiat comes around and he gets going, I'm just like, no, this is this is Basquiat's story. You know, this was the main thing was about him, his troubles, his relationships with his girlfriend, who who plays a central part in this role, and how Andy and Bruno are trying to corral this shooting star into this exhibition. I think. I learned some things about Basquiat that I didn't previously know. I mean, I didn't know he was, first of all, he was like a ladies' man. <laughs> he was, they allude to it both actually in the Schnabel film and in the play that he was like sleeping with Madonna and he was this rock star. And I do feel like sometimes Basquiat has this reputation of the starving artist. He was homeless, but the poor starving artist who after his death became a rock star but I think the the main point I learned that he was extremely famous while he was alive. I mean, he became not just famous in the art circles, but very wealthy. The play depicts him like, and, and he was mistrusting of banks. So the play depicts him hiding all his like probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, like in his fridge, girlfriend's fridge. And there's a funny scene in the play where Warhol opens the fridge to get a friend of water and just stacks of hundreds come out. He was internationally renowned they had really put him on the map and he was wealthy the, the issue with him is that he was he had such a deep drug problem you know and andy couldn't pull it out of him bruno his dealers anina no say mary boone they tried but you know it's it's kind of a tragic story i remember looking at the the room of the basquiat paintings and in my head i couldn't help it as like a former christie's person being like yeah, it's about a billion dollars just mm-hmm. sitting right there in present day, you know, mm-hmm. value of these paintings. And I don't know, he's a remarkable figure. I, I want to talk about Andy, though, in this, actually. You know, what did you think of Bettany's Andy? His kind of wispy, insecure, reluctant. Yeah, well, it's funny because we just spoke to Blake yeah. last week about Andy. Well, there was some weird weirdness that they they wrote into this play that I think was maybe meant to come off as humor, which was some gay jokes. Oh I yeah. Think. A lot. Like every scene, them two together, there was these weird interactions they would have and the audience would chuckle. And I don't know who the gay jokes were 
for or on like if they were making fun of Andy for being gay or if they were making I don't know it was like weird because there'd be a scene where Andy would be on his knees working on a painting and Pope Basquiat would come up and like just his crotch would be in Andy's face and Andy would look up and he'd give it like a two second kind of expression yeah or like there's like a lot of weird body language Um, when they took their shirts off which is like the famous scene of the play no there was like other stuff where they they would get so close when they were arguing where it was like they almost like they were making out and they would be like staring at each other and they would stop and then they would kind of just like and then walk away but it was weird humor because there were a couple times you even whispered in my ear you were like did they ever hook up (laughs) and then i was like who is this humor for like is it and then I thought, is this play meant to be funny? I was like, is is this because the rest of the play wasn't funny? I was like, and then I was like, do, do I need to, am I unfunny? Do I need to pull my head out of my ass? Because I was like, this is like middle school, like gay jokes either way. And I, I'm like, are they making fun of Andy for being like a lonely old gay man who is like working with a handsome young man or i i wasn't really sure what the that's what like the 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 play lend itself to i did feel like it was posing andy as this they even went on to say like how alone he was how the best years were behind him how he he spent nights just walking in the park in a quiet existence basquiat makes fun of him for not living this rock star lifestyle considering how famous he was and that andy sort of like yearned for another partner a lover and it seemed like this play depicted Basquiat as this temptation for Andy, which was not something that was done in the in the Schnabel film. And I don't know how accurate historically that was. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know. There, there was just some weirdness to this play. It was not. It it like I said, it was this quote unquote collaboration or friendship was painted with large brush because i i've seen the paintings as i'm sure you've seen the paintings in real life and for as much as i know about the two and then the little bit i know about them in passing together it's the the way they made it seem in the play was like they didn't like each other or they barely liked each other and then at the end it was just kind of like this limp-wristed, weak gay man who barely had a heart being like, well, I don't know what to do about like this heroin-ridden, dying, you know, painter who is my cash cow I'm also riding on. Should we look for him in the hospital? You know what I mean? It just was like, yeah, just I, it was just kind of like weak. Like, how how are they going to write this movie? I'd really like to see how they turn it into a film where they give Andy a heart, and they've got to write a, a lot more into who Basquiat was because he wasn't he was he was a lot more. First of all, he, he was a lot more of a junkie. I'm sure he was a poet. I mean. Kurt Cobain was a poet. There's a lot of amazing American rock stars, for lack of a better term, that were addicted to that exact same drug and died from it very sadly. That were, you know, poets, to say the least, and productive 
and part of the 27 Club, but it's so such a gnarly, grisly, horrible, horrible descent down into hell before you you yeah. leave this earth. So, like, I don't know how you you make that pretty towards the end, you know? They depicted it very briefly where he he found out about his friend Michael had been beaten by the police and that fortunately that sadly that Michael had passed in the hospital and he ran into his couch. He grabbed the box, he put it out. He started to tie the tube around his arm. And that's when he was discovered and Warhol came into the room. I wanted to ask, do you think there's been a definitive Warhol performance on film? He's appeared in probably countless movies and TV shows and like off the top of my head, I can think of like five, but do you think an actor has accurately depicted Warhol on screen? Have we seen that performance yet? No, because that's what I was saying before. It's always a movie about someone else who had Andy in their life. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody has dared take on someone as big and complicated as Andy Warhol. Alone, you know? Because it's so, it's too, it's too much of a black hole. That is a black hole, my friend. Wouldn't you like to see someone take well, that challenge on, though? I would love, I would You know, love like, I, I don't see, I, I said this to you yesterday. It's like, maybe I'm, I'm crazy. If you guys know the film that exists out there, that's really, really great, just about him. Like Jerry said, he's usually this ancillary character within the world of creatives in New York in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Where's, like, the... Truman Capote style, like real gritty depiction, like what Philip Seymour Hoffman did of Warhol. You know, like, I don't know. We just spoke with Blake Opnick. Like, there's your source material. You know, yeah. Blake wrote the definitive description of Andy's life. Like, wouldn't you, and I, I kick it over to the audience, like, wouldn't you want to see someone do a two and a half hour real biopic about Andy Warhol from when he's in Pittsburgh to the 80s when he's meeting Basquiat and, and, for, and his untimely death? And everything in between with Velvet Underground and the factory, it would be fascinating. It really would be. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, is Paul Bettany the guy to do it? He's going to be playing Warhol in this upcoming collaboration film. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see. And I I mean, we'll, we'll take this film with a grain of salt. I would love to hear what, I wonder if Julian Schnabel went to see this play. I wonder what he thought about it. Yeah. I, I, it's very so We should reach out to him and, yeah, and Julian, get his take on it. We really want your take on the collaboration. Maybe he liked it. Who knows? And now, as promised by ChatGPT, <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit about AI, or as ChatGPT said, did it say AI or? It was like I, I art, I art. I art. Robot couldn't even find itself. According to CBS News, artists sue AI company for billions, mm, love that word, billions, <laughs> alleging Parasite app use their work for free. And you know what I'm talking about. There are all types of AI art apps out right now that can do all types of things. You can literally say, paint me a picture of me and my two cats 
in the style of Peter Paul Rubens flying into the heavens away from Matthew painted as a, what is it called when you're a half man, half horse? Centaur. Centaur. Actually, that's a painting I'd like to see. We can. We, we can, should have that as a fresco. Yeah, I would. House. We're gonna get on the AI apps to do so. And this is deeply upsetting the art world and calling all types of things into question. The question on whether AI art is infringing on the rights of of creators as a whole is really interesting and topical. I mean, I've had this conversation with artists. You know, six or seven times in the last month because it's really front of mind. The law firm that's suing these AI platforms are bringing class actions on two fronts. One on the rights of some three, I think it's three painters or three artists in California. And they're also in tandem bringing a lawsuit on behalf of a group of computer programmers because these AI platforms have been ripping code and spitting it out as their generated, you know, product. It is a thing that'll be adjudicated. I, I think this is like likely to be like a Supreme Court kind of kind of thing to figure out because these AI platforms for the last X number of years have been eating and consuming the internet and all of the inputs from creators, from coders, from artists. And that's what they've been trained on. And you know, it's it's cute when you make a a Paul Rubens, you know, in the style of Paul Rubens with your cats. You know, Paul Rubens isn't gonna get up and sue, but what a lot of artists are finding is that their contemporary artworks are also being ripped. The AI platforms claim that they're, you know, they're they are bypassing sort of copyright because they're changing it, you know, slightly and, and that's their defense and that'll be adjudicated in the courts. It's but, in the essence of Yeah, or that's it, there, there's some other types of like niche copyright law that like I don't feel we need to get into, but they're going to use like what the current laws state on the U.S. government books as a defense that they're changing it just enough. The fact that a lot of creatives in coding or in artists aren't receiving any form of a licensing fee, which is really what they're going to try to get for the use of their images by these platforms, is an apt question and one that we wanted to raise. Do you think that artists that have their images being utilized by these platforms should receive some sort of licensing fee. And I also want to say that they've, someone put out, and I'll, we'll link it maybe, that you can you can search your work to see if it's been ripped by AI. Someone really? built some sort of like reverse search engine platform. Yeah, so we'll link it to see. Maybe you can see if you've been, you've been copied. But back to the question, do you think that the artists deserve a licensing fee from the AI platforms? Of course they do. Of course they do. Sadly, what is it going to be like? Zero point yeah. one cent per, you know. It's kind of like the resale royalty thing. Yeah. You know? it, it does remind me of those arguments a little bit. You know? Yeah. Unfortunately, oh man, this this is what makes me sad right now. This is what, oh, so this is what makes me sad. It just occurred to me now in this conversation. So maybe like this thought I'm a little late to the game on. But the reason that I've I've always known as an artist to be really suspect of these major platforms like Instagram and Facebook back when I was on Facebook in terms of visually giving it anything that I made 
and also giving it my life. Like I remember there was a time early on, 2011, I've told this story before, I'll tell it again. I was in San Francisco and for some reason I was asked to be on a panel for an exhibition that Facebook was co-sponsoring. And the one of the lead engineers of this brand new thing, this was in 2011, was this thing called Timeline. And this big announcement right there at the art gallery announces this thing called Timeline. And he explains what Timeline is because at the time, all Instagram really was, was you upload your fun pictures from whatever you're doing, maybe tag your friends, have some chat groups, make your status. Jerry is... Or, I mean Facebook, right? You're talking about Facebook. Facebook. Sorry, yeah. not Instagram. Yeah. Instagram was very primitive at this time. Sorry. Facebook. The engineer's like, well, we're rolling out this new thing called Timeline. And Timeline's going to be so amazing because within six months, with the amount of data that we will be able to gather from all 8 billion of our, I wasn't 8 billion, but like however 4 billion of our users that we have, we will be able to predict within the next five years your entire life cycle. And that freaked me out so much that I immediately like went home and I deleted, I permanently deleted Facebook. He was like, we can take an entire person's life and sum it all up into a dot of data that is smaller than the prick of a needle. That freaked me out, you know? But now I really feel bad even for, you know, artists who I've always encouraged, like, use social media as much as possible to your benefit because I've always said, like, you know, you don't really need, like, you don't need to go to a fancy school. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. You need a library card. You need an art scene that you can become a part of and you need social media and you you'll make it. You can find a way to make it. But what you're really doing is you're feeding you're feeding into the content farm. And it sucks because that was kind of a hope that they had. Most people had that that was they're going to be their one way to have some say in their in their entrepreneurial path, and they're getting fucked. It's I think you're so right, you know, and that's something I didn't I didn't even visualize. Like the the promise of social media for an artist was this place to put their work up where they kind of owned it and they could communicate with others and sell work and become famous and become big art stars. And now, you know, the AI platforms have gone in there and sort of borrowed and taken their creative product and they packaged it into a software as a service subscription platforms that like anyone can use and steal your work. 
and use it for commercial purposes. And I think that's what the lawyers in this lawsuit are going to argue. It's going to be probably an uphill battle. I think copyright is weird. Like things that are so obvious in copyright, like stealing, oftentimes courts might not say that that's stealing. You know, there's like certain clauses again, in like the copyright laws of the United States that maybe don't look at favorably as, uh, to the creator. I think a licensing fee towards the creative to me makes sense. It's not just limited to artists. Like I, I was reading about ChatGPT, our, our, our intro buddy. When people ask ChatGPT, hey, where can I get like a lobster roll in this area? ChatGPT is going to like Yelp or Google reviews or such and grabbing the context. And it's going to list you here are the five best places according to, you know, us. But in fact, they're grabbing that data from another third party. So like even in that world, there's probably going to be huge lawsuits between tech giants on their information. It's like an information war. Artists are getting it first because I think one of the first products that OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, wrote was, was Dolly and this whole AI generated art. And it, it's funny how the art world now is going to be really central to a huge hundreds of billions of dollars in, in future cash. Like the art world is going to define the legal framework for artificial intelligence scraping data from amongst many sources. Yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you, Jerry, actually, I do have a question. Yeah, on this. Sure. Like, do you think that AI art can be fine art? Should we even consider it to be art or is it something else? Like what I'm thinking about when someone rips a Mondrian pattern for like their rug, right? Or something like that. Is it, are we in that world? Is it just like a product that exists that's borrowing the themes from an artist? Or is AI art its own form of art? Mm. Okay, so I was having this thought earlier because I knew we were preparing for this conversation. And I was thinking about like all the bad arguments that have been made for why Jeff Koons is an artist. Jeff Koons hasn't ever painted one of his paintings, right? He just comes up with the idea for the paintings. And then he he doesn't even sketch them. He just says what he wants and comes up with the references. And then he has people model them out for him. And then he has people sketch them out for him. And then he has people paint them out for him. And then or chisel them out for him. He has like non-artificial intelligence, <laughs> you know, humanoid intelligence. I don't know what it's called, but they're appendages to his mind, so to speak. So are you saying, and if I'm trying to understand, it's like AI art, if Jeff, we consider what Jeff Koons and other big artists, when they have these appendages, you know, these we do humanoid art you, intelligence yeah. are out there creating, they have these systems in place and they give, they prompt their assistants to go out and make these works mm -hmm. that it's very similar to how AI art, AI art will function. Yeah. So what I'm I can saying see that, you know, I can see that argument. Eventually they'll just like say, I want it this way, blah, 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 blah. And who knows in the future if like- And they'll what? just be able to like click and like cash out hit send and then like two weeks later three weeks later not even a tube like a perfectly packaged rectangular 
package shows up in the mail, art handled and all. Delivered by Amazon drone robots. Yeah. Or no, art handlers. <laughs> you know? And it's, it is what you asked for. Well, who knows in the future if there will be like robotic arms that can go out there and paint like Salvador Dali. You know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no physical limits to that. That could happen. Yeah. And so maybe so maybe like when people say like, oh, art is not art. Perhaps like we need to recalibrate what we think art currently is. Because if AI art is not art, then the products that are being done by huge studios like that, like Coons or et cetera, to me, I agree with you. It's sort of similar. I don't know how you parse that out. We were, before we got on the show, we were watching a video. And this goes back to the lawsuit that the story of Prometheus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ancient legend of Greek mythology and how <laughs> we're, we're watching like a live in IRL depiction of the story of Prometheus. The quick story is that Prometheus was a Titan who stole fire from the Olympian gods and brought it to the people on earth, representing like a gift of godlike technology and innovation. And for his service, Zeus took Prometheus and tied him down to an eternal punishment where every day I think an eagle would come and rip out his liver, mm-hmm. take it and go. It would heal up the next day and then it would happen all over again. And the summary being the person that provided this innovation and this tech to a mass audience served an eternal hell. And it's like, if you use the metaphor of Prometheus in, in this context of AI art, it's like the AI art, pla- AI art platforms are the Prometheus. You know, they mm-hmm. brought this technology to the mass people. And now this lawsuit might be the first time that they might reap what they sow and be experienced like a Prometheus style for punishment. Who knows? Yeah, I I think we're a, we're a little bit far from feeling that yet sometimes. I have I ask myself this question and I laugh when I ask myself this question. How much easier does life need to get? And I'm being serious when I'm asking because everything that we could really want, we could get from I mean in this room right now there are one there are four devices that we could order anything and everything that we need to sustain our life for the next, I don't know, 50 years if we needed to, right? How much easier does life need to get? We don't, it doesn't need to get easier, actually. And like we, I I think a lot about like when we drive on the highways, you know, to go in and around our towns. And I look at how like the roads are falling apart and like no one's fixing the roads or I, I look at like all Pete, all... Pete Buttigieg would disagree with you. Oh, okay. He's well, out there trying, Pete. Keep up the good fight. Okay. Fix the pothole like down the street from us, please. Yeah. Or I look at like certain things where like very clearly in reality, reality could use some help, you know? Like, yeah. if you go into the subway systems in New York, you're like, ooh, can someone help, please? Yeah, it's like the discussion between like bits and atoms. 
how like all this innovation is happening in the bits side mm-hmm. of things and computing processing. Mm-hmm. But like, how about the atoms out there? You know, yeah. the real stuff, the physical. Last week we were driving to Yale and every single sign on the road was like, have this bariatric surgery and lose all this weight. Get a hair transplant. You're fat. You're bald. You're, your erectile your dysfunction doesn't, doesn't yeah. have to be you. Like all of these signs. Oh, oh, my favorite were like, like signs about like go- something about like going out in style, which I th- I thought it was like a like a fashion company, and it was like a sign about what's it called like cremation. I was like, what? <laughs> I was so confused. And meanwhile, you look around and I'm like, that's a burned down factory. That's an abandoned factory. That's like an abandoned urban city. Like, what's going on, guys? Like, we've got like physical issues happening with the world around us. Yet, like, if you look at the phone and you look at all the influencers and all the like, you can get this here to your house in the next three hours and everything is fine and just drink your green juice and like whatever, just keep feeding the machine, keep feeding the machine. I don't know. I'm like, I think things sort of need to be harder in a way. It's like that movie WALL-E where we're becoming the characters in WALL-E where we're relying on the machine, for lack of a better term, to tell us and coddle us and inform us about the world in every single way. And now it's also going to just make art for us. And we're just going to trust that that's art. Remember the topics of conversation in like the mid-2010s when AI was gaining steam was that, well, in the future, everyone's just going to have to be an artist, you know? Because AI is going to take all the computational roles, the data entry stuff. We're going to have driverless vehicles. And you're just going to be able to create. And it's like one of the first products that the AI companies roll out is artificial paintings. Like that's, they're taking that right away. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I don't think that anybody who's, at least in the art world that, you know, you and I hang out in, takes that type of artwork serious yet though i use jeff coons as a very specific example for a reason and you know andy warhol also did not make his own work as well and it's not so hard to think that there's gonna be some artist who comes up with some idea that clicks with you know the the zeitgeist and the moment and the aesthetic and lines up with all of these ideas where a bunch of art collectors and critics and everyone goes yeah that makes total sense i think that's probably what's gonna happen i mean i do think assimilation people will think there will be but then who gets the credit for the artwork right is it the prompter of that machine or the coder yeah or the company right like who's who is the artist in that situation yeah i don't know like there's that avatar little michaela oh yeah yeah and i believe that 
she was birthed, I don't know, born, created by a small collective of coders and who I believe identify as artists as well. And now little Michaela is just 2.9 million Instagram followers, has a Discord, has major fashion deals. And then there's also Ada, who has- We saw in Venice, right? We saw in Venice, who people get incredibly freaked out by her consciousness and her intelligence. I have an idea. Let's ask our friend Chat GPT whether or not an AI consciousness can really be an artist. Okay, so we're gonna go. We'll, we're gonna ask Chat GPT. We'll do it. I'm gonna do it live right here. I'm gonna type it out. Artificial intelligence can be used to create art, but whether or not it can be truly considered an artist is a matter of debate. Some argue that AI can be considered an artist because it can create unique and creative works. They point to examples such as AI-generated music, paintings, and poetry that have been shown to be indistinguishable from those created by humans. Others argue that AI can never truly be considered an artist because it lacks the consciousness and intent that are essential to the creative process. They argue that AI can only mimic human creativity and that its outputs are ultimately determined by the programmers who created it. Ultimately, whether or not AI can be considered an artist is a question that may be largely dependent on one's definition of art and the role of an artist. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, ChatGPT just knocked AI's position as an artist out of the game. Boom. Goodbye. See ya. This has been Art Smack, episode 11. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining. I'm Matt. This is... Cherry Kigosian. Like we mentioned at the top, please give us a, a nice five-star review on whatever platform you're listening. We're an independent podcast, and it really goes a long way. Shiny, beautiful, golden stars. We appreciate it, guys. This has been fun. See you later. See you on the internet.